Sorry I'm a little bit late. Uh, during the week, uh, I don't know that I, I downplayed it, but uh, I certainly didn't recognize it and, and, and felt it and knew it uh, from the moment that I've gotten here. Uh, tonight, obviously, was for our, our, our players, but um, it's for our former players. Um, it's for our donors. It's for our fans. Um, I know how much this has meant um, to the people of, of Tennessee and Ball Nation, and uh, so excited that uh, we are coming out with the win. All right, welcome in and welcome to the party, Tennessee Volunteers, man. Unbelievable win for Josh Heifel. As you can see, the emotion, the excitement. We all saw the videos all over social media on Saturday night. I couldn't escape them to the point where it's like, I got to put my phone on mute. I'm going to delete Twitter off my phone because I can't see another video of the goalpost being paraded around Knoxville. All right, it hurt. It hurt bad, but I was happy for Tennessee. Of course, ended the streak of 15 consecutive to Alabama. They deserved it. They were the better team. They made the fewer mistakes, and they didn't melt down when the game was on the line. More on that game here in just a minute. Welcome to the Monday edition of Always College Football. Today is October 17th, putting a bow on what was one of the craziest weekends we've seen in recent college football history. Just an incredible, incredible Saturday from start to finish. Big time upsets. Unbelievable comebacks, comebacks that fell short, unbelievable individual performances. My goodness, it had it all. It had it all. Dominant performances, dramatic finishes, best players dropping passes inside the five-yard line that would have set them up for a go-ahead score as a 17-point dog. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Iowa State. Craziness across the board in the college football world, but that's why we love it, man. It was just incredible. You never know what's going to happen any given Saturday. And what a Saturday it was. So without much further ado, we're going to dive into some of these games. So let's talk about it. Lions, Tigers, and tailgates. Oh, my. The college football season is always a great time of year. Besides the jerseys, the face paint, and the foam fingers, there's the food. And nothing gets you more fired up for game day than Eckrich smoked sausage. They're naturally hardwood smoked and have the perfect blend of spices. From buffalo sausage dip, sausage, chili, mac, and cheese... Eckridge Smoked Sausage is a quick way to bring flavor to all your tailgate meals. Visit Eckridge.com for easy, one-of-a-kind sausage recipes. Eckridge, you do you. Every college football season, Goodyear knows the importance of winning on the road. The road will always demand confidence. The confidence to handle whatever the journey brings and to perform under tough conditions. And just like the players and the fans of college football, Goodyear is ready. Are you ready for the road? Visit Goodyear.com to find the right Goodyear tires for whatever road you're on this season. Goodyear, more driven. All right, where else can we start? I got this one totally wrong. Thought that Alabama would not make the mistakes that plagued them against Texas. Thought that they would get off to a fast start. Thought that Tennessee would inevitably feel the pressure and then ultimately not be able to do enough to turn the tide and figure it out down the stretch. It looked like that might actually come to fruition when Alabama took the 49-42 lead on the heels of what was the only flaw, flawed play of the day it felt like from Hendon Hooker. He didn't miss a couple throws, but for all intents and purposes, for 60 minutes in the ballgame, man, that was a mentally tough performance from the quarterback of Tennessee. Could have gone sideways, looked like Bama might steal it, but no Tennessee would not be denied, and they 
for the first time since 2006, they have beaten the Alabama Crimson Tide. First time against Nick Saban, they've beaten the Crimson Tide. So this is a massive, massive game, obviously, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time breaking it down. Let's start with the game-winning kick, okay? <laughs> the ugliest game-winning kick I've ever seen. But you don't have to draw a picture on a scorecard, do you? It was a sidewinder. I thought it got blocked because you saw CBS take the Skycam footage from right behind, and you saw Alabama defenders that were in the backfield in fairly decent position to be able to get a piece of it. I thought it got blocked. I'm sitting there in the middle of a call between Florida and LSU, sitting there thinking, they just blocked the kick. They're going to overtime. Start calling the play again. Look over. I see people running on the field. I'm like, what happened? It was wild, man. But interesting. Hey, credit to Chase McGrath. He didn't hit it great, but he hit it straight, right? It doesn't have to necessarily be the end over end. It wasn't flawless contact. Joe Tessitore, who's my partner, broke it down extensively. His son was a kicker at Boston College. So I got the full rundown of what the kick's supposed to be like. I guess he hit it kind of in the middle of the ball. Either way, that's a kick that will be remembered forever in Knoxville. And I don't think Chase McGrath should ever have to pay for a drink again. I'm on the record there. Uh, another guy that shouldn't ever have to pay for a drink again is Jalen Hyatt. We had talked a little bit about the Tennessee wide receiver core and where they compose their threats. We know that Cedric Tillman, when available, is off the charts good. We've seen the emergence of Brew McCoy and just how much of a weapon he can be and how, man, he, he's just constantly getting better and better and better the last few weeks. The guy that we didn't talk enough about was Jalen Hyatt. Straight line speed, the ability to really threaten you deep, and... The fact that he's more often than not going to draw the lesser corner of the two corners when he's lined up and they're in man-to-man. -man. Like, for instance, if I got Darrell Revis and just your average pro, Darrell Revis is going with Tillman. Darrell Revis, at least from what we've seen, is going with Brew McCoy. Well, guess what? Darrell Revis did that. Obviously, Bama's version of Darrell Revis, right? Bama's version with Darrell Revis went that direction which gave you favorable matchups with Jalen Hyatt, and they took advantage of it over and over and over again with big plays, with with just, I mean, underneath stuff, slants, verticals, you name it. They had a great, great, great rapport, him and Hendon Hooker on the day. Just an incredible performance. Most receiving touchdowns in a game in SEC history tied Devontae Smith. He, of course, won the Heisman. Tied Sidney Rice in 2006. He also had five. That was against Florida Atlantic, though. Earl Bennett of Vanderbilt had five touches against Kentucky back in 2005. And then Carlos Carson. I don't know who Carlos Carson is, but in 77, he had five touchdowns against Rice. So needless to say, you look at those performances. Yes, Devontae Smith's performance against Ole Miss back in 2019. That was the shootout. That was Lane Kiffin's first year. That was obviously a great performance. But man, on a bigger stage, is this the best wide receiving performance in SEC history? Be difficult to make a case against it. That's for sure. Hendon Hooker, however, at the quarterback spot was the guy that got it done. Just an incredible performance off play action. An incredible performance making throws down the field. That's what it takes to beat Alabama. You got to be able to make difficult throws and you got to be able to win your one-on-one -on -one battles. They did so time and time and time again. So much credit to Hendon Hooker. So much credit to the offensive line, which I thought held up beautifully under the circumstances. So much credit to the entire receiving core, but most notably to Jalen Hyatt. Moving over to Alabama, a lot of things to clean up. You finally got got. You can't continue to live 
the way they've lived in each of the last few weeks with penalties, with carelessness, with turnovers. And I know that, you know, the, for instance, the muffed punt, if you will, uh, that's a turnover naturally. But you know what's also a turnover? When you line up at third and 22 from your own two-yard line because you had multiple pre-snap penalties that backed you up and now Bryce Young's playing from his own end zone. And then your punter's punting from his own end zone, and he has to punt it to the 30-yard line. Bama's sloppiness inevitably caught up for him. Now, Bryce Young is phenomenal. We saw that again on Saturday. The only reason why they were even in the game was because of his brilliance. Bama left some plays on the field. Bama definitely, definitely, I think, was capable of playing a whole lot better than they did. And I don't think we've heard the last of Alabama, by the way. They have flaws. They absolutely have flaws. But if there's one coach in college football that I trust to address the flaws, it's Nick Saban. So I'd be surprised. I would. I'd be surprised if they don't play better down the stretch. But they're going to have to play a whole heck of a lot better because guess what I learned this weekend? Ole Miss is a problem, and LSU is now a problem as well. So plenty of meat on the bone for Alabama as they move forward. If they don't get things tightened up, it's going to get very, very difficult to anticipate them getting back into the playoff. But either way... Incredible game, putting a bow on it with this. Congratulations, Tennessee. Congratulations to your fans. You've weathered the storm. It's been really, really, really awful. As a fan of college football, to see where Tennessee's program's been for the last decade, but it's been really great to see where they've been the last two years and the excitement surrounding the fan base. And you saw it all unfold right there at midfield after the Chase McGrath field goal. It felt like uh, a decade and a half of pent-up frustration that was released. So congratulations. Enjoy it. But guess what? In two weeks, you play Georgia. This one's great, but it won't mean jack if you don't get things taken care of in two weeks against the Georgia Bulldogs. All right, real quick. Is this knee-jerk, or is Hendon Hooker the Heisman favorite right now? I don't think it's knee-jerk, but he's been on the short list, I think, for the last few weeks, right? I mean, the performances that we've seen from him almost every week it's difficult to make a case against him, right? Now, I'm not one that usually likes, oh, well, here's my Heisman list. You know, here's eight guys. But, you know, I, I probably consider 15 guys on a week-to-week basis, and you just kind of whittle it down. And you, like, I, I'm a voter, and personally, I feel like the voting process has its fair share of flaws. I also think that there's issues with how many guys you can be on each vote. I think it should be five guys as opposed to three guys. I also think, too, that it's become very quarterback heavy and we need to consider every position like Brock Bowers to me right now at Georgia. He'd be in consideration for me because of what a great football player he is. Right. Um, but I, I don't know. That was certainly a Heisman moment. Right. And I think more than anything else, what I was most impressed with with Hendon Hooker, not that he made great throws down the field. He's been doing that all year. Like that's. That was expected. Like I, I'm not surprised that he made great throws and lit it up from a passing yard standpoint and you know, answered the bell when his number was called. But what I was most impressed with was the fact that they had an unforced error that resulted in an Alabama touchdown that gave Alabama the lead. And what did Hendon Hooker do from that point forward? You know, because that was a turning point in the game in which Tennessee could have imploded. And there was so much pressure on them. There was so much hype around the game. And the fact that he was able to completely flip the switch, lead his team right down the field to tie it up. And then inevitably, after the uh, Rikard missed the field goal from 50 yards, 
understanding, hey, got a couple timeouts. Let's go see if we can't try to take advantage of this thing and win it in, in, in regulation. That, to me, was his Heisman moment. And none of the throws in, in that sequence will get talked about, like some of the ones that he made in the first you know 50 minutes of the game. But that was guts. That was poise. And that was what I'll remember most about the performance from Hendon Hooker and the entire Tennessee football team. All right, moving on. Another incredible performance that unfortunately is being a little bit lost in the shuffle because of the jubilation and the excitement that surrounds the Tennessee victory over Alabama. But y'all, you could make a case that the most impressive performance of the weekend was actually that of the Michigan Wolverines. Dominant. Absolutely dominant. And yes, they found themselves at halftime, you know, in a tight game. But I sat there and watched just about every snap. That never at any point felt like it was a tight game. Yeah, Clifford had the big run. They had the interception to the house. And man, it's like, how is Penn State in this football game? But offensively, Michigan being able to run the ball, Michigan being able to create opportunities. And you got to see too, remember for a long time, how long did we talk about Michigan? Really prior to last year, and I think it was best exemplified probably in the 2019 season against Ohio State, we started to kind of wonder and pontificate. We started to say, well, you know, Michigan just looks slow, right? They don't look athletic. Like Michigan doesn't look fast. Like They don't scare me. You watch them against Ohio State, it's like Ohio State looks like they got ice skates on and they're skating down the ice, and Michigan looks like their, their cleats are made of concrete. Like That's what it looked like. And those games, obviously, from like 17, 18, 19, whatever, however that stretch got really sideways, and you started to just kind of get this narrative about Michigan's athleticism or lack thereof. If there was one thing that was noticeably evident on Saturday's performance was just how much faster, was how much more athletic, was how much more active Michigan was than Penn State. And you couple all that improved athleticism that we've seen now and you couple that with an offensive line that's just flat out moving people off the ball. Remember, this is a group, too, that won the Joe Moore Award last year. And I'll be real surprised if they're not in the mix again this year. That was a clinic offensively. Now, you can look at it, too, and Penn State, hey, they were not gap sound. I did not think they did a great job against the run. I thought Penn State's performance was substandard. And I think they're better than what they showed. But I do think they got exposed in a few different ways. All I know, though, is that Donovan Edwards and Blake Corum untouched on a couple different occasions to the house on big runs. I also know, too, and I don't know if J.J. McCarthy's going to necessarily going to light you up with his legs, but you could tell by the way Penn State played against the Michigan run game, they were always accounting for J.J. McCarthy. It's like, hey, we better be, we better be careful of what this quarterback can do, too. I mean, they were just a, a step slow and a step hesitant, which made me think, man, they had been told all week, hey, these running backs will kill you, but so will the quarterback. So I like the offensive approach so much from what I saw with Michigan. But the other thing I'd say, man, defensively, defensively, I mean, they didn't give an inch. Yeah, they gave up a couple big plays. Yeah, I mean, they gave up some, but man, it wasn't much. And we had been kind of wondering, and this was the point last year where I feel like the nation started to take notice of what Michigan was doing. Michigan last year, midway point, 
we all knew Aiden Hutchinson, but I don't think any of us knew that he was going to finish second in the Heisman. I don't think any of us knew he was going to be the second overall draft pick. I don't think anybody at this point, frankly, nationally, knew who David Ajabo was at this point last year. And then all of a sudden, boom, the switch flipped. They started to make some noise, and they got hot. Well, if they can replicate that performance that I saw yesterday down the stretch, not only will it be difficult for every single team that they play against, but I tell you what, they're going to be a pain in the butt for Ohio State too. And everyone that thinks that Ohio State's just going to be a runaway winner in the Big Ten East, think again. Because that right there is the ultimate neutralizer against a high-flying passing attack. And if Ohio State hasn't addressed some of their issues with what they struggled with last year when it came to Michigan, and I know they've turned over things defensively and that group looks better collectively by a mile. But I'm not sure they've seen a group that's quite as physical. And I'm not sure they've seen a group that's quite as committed to what they do as Michigan. So I am very optimistic with what I saw yesterday. And I will be a prisoner of the moment. I will be. <laughs> I'll admit, I loved what I saw from the Wolverines yesterday. And I think if we can get that performance again, they will be a tough out for everybody. Everybody. And their athleticism at quarterback, I think, will make them far more competitive in a playoff setting if, in fact, they get there down the road. All right. I'm going to make prisoner of the moment. You have to choose Tennessee and Georgia from the SEC East or Ohio State and Michigan from the Big Ten East. Which two are better? Which two are better? Yeah. Like, which would you take? Like, if I had those two teams, if we playing like a round robin tournament, what are we like? What's the yes. format here? Yes. Neutral yeah, sites? Like, if we're playing in and you're sitting there and you're looking at Ohio State and Michigan, you're looking at Tennessee and Georgia, and you're like, boy, if they all played together or played each other, who are you taking? What's funny is I feel like Ohio State and, and Tennessee are very similar. You know what I mean? Like, not quite, I think. But, hey, excellent quarterbacks, excellent wide receivers, an offensive line that does a pretty good job with what they're asked to do. Uh, I think the Tennessee and Ohio State, almost identical in a lot of ways. Uh, aggressive defense that wants to you know try to dictate their own terms. Um, Skill-wise, personnel-wise, I think Ohio State's personnel on defense may be a little bit better. But I, I do think that the system for Tennessee might make their individual players look and play better than they actually are. So I think the back end for for Tennessee has a lot of issues, for sure. I mean, that was that was fairly obvious on Saturday afternoon with Bryce Young going to the tune of 450, right? I mean, they have some issues in the back end, but I do think that they can create some problems for some folks. And if Tennessee played, or excuse me, if Ohio State played against Bama, for instance, would they succumb to that passing attack as well. That, that I think is, well, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, uh, uh, well, they're averaging 16, 15, 17, so 16, right? On the last two big games on the road. If you don't want to, people are kind of selectively forgetting about the Arkansas performance. That was a good one. Uh, but either way, long story short, I, I think the teams are really close. I think Michigan and Georgia are comparable. No, I really do. Like, I think J.J. McCarthy is a good athlete, really solid with his legs. I think Stetson Bennett, very, very underrated, very underappreciated, athletic with his legs, keeps drives alive with his legs. I think Michigan's run game is more potent. Uh, I think Georgia's offense may be the tiniest bit more diverse with the type of weapons that they have, uh, even though I don't know if they have a true, crazy, explosive playmaker 
beyond Brock Bowers, who of course is, you know, maybe as good as anybody in the country as far as being a weapon for whatever offense he wants to play in. So uh, I think they are, it's a great question. I think it's extremely comparable. I would lean slightly, slightly towards Georgia and Tennessee because I think Georgia is still better than Michigan at this point. And I think Tennessee, because I've seen Tennessee against quality competition, I have not yet seen Ohio State against quality competition. Doesn't mean they can't. They've been totally dominant. You know, that game control metric and all this other stuff. Are you saying that Notre Dame win doesn't mean as much now? I'm saying that Notre Dame win win means literally nothing. Uh, When I say nothing, I mean like nothing. nothing. So I I think that right now Ohio State is still a little bit, yes, the numbers are impressive. The dominance is impressive. It's not like they're playing to the level of the competition. I mean, they are playing their own game and they're dominating. But they haven't really done so against anybody with a pulse yet. And I'm not sure they're going to until they maybe run into Michigan. Because if you look at what's remaining on their schedule, yes, I know they still have Penn State. I know there's a couple others in there. The Maryland trip, Talia Tungavaloa being out. I don't know what they're going to be now in the last second to last week of the season. So I, I'd be shocked if Ohio State isn't 11-0 before they play against Michigan. But I don't know if we know that much about that team because I'm not sure they're going to deal with a whole lot of adversity between week one and week 11 prior to week 12. So I, I think they're, they're crazy. They're crazy gifted and they're crazy skilled, but it's a great question. Finally, another team that's crazy gifted, crazy skilled. They fell actually on Saturday night. That is the USC Trojans. Finally, finally, USC had been playing with fire. They had, they'd been playing with fire. We liked Utah in the game. We actually looked at at the matchup and thought, you know what? Right now, right now, I feel like Utah offensively is just as good as what USC has. Um, I just think Utah on defense has a whole lot of problems. Probably more problems than Utah's ever had. In my memory, watching Utah on that side of the ball, man, it is alarming to watch that group play defense. It's not pretty whatsoever. But Utah was a slight favorite when USC was coming to town, so not really an upset. What was an upset was the performance that Dalton Kincaid put together. 16 receptions, 234 yards. That's the most receptions by an FBS player in a game this season and one short of the FBS record for a tight end. Additionally, the 234 yards are the second most in a game in school history and the 16 receptions, second most in the game in school history. So if you look at the performance that Kincaid had, he accounted for half of Cam Risen's completions and yards in the game and recorded 12 of the team's first downs. That's how important Dalton Kincaid was to the Utah Utes offense. The other thing that was important, Cam Rising's legs, man. He is so mobile and does such a great job feeling his way in the pocket, and it was probably best on display in the two-point conversion that inevitably gave them the win. The two-point conversion where he's standing back there, doesn't like anything to his right, scans back inside, doesn't like anything there, and then he decides, you know what? I'm taking it. Tucks and runs, vertical north and south, has to evade just a little bit to his left, but knows exactly where he's at, extends the ball, strike at the fight song, Utah takes a one-point lead. I thought he played great. He played great. And look, 
he's actually had a great year, Cam Rising has. Maybe not the year that some might have expected, but either way, Cam Rising has been terrific all season long. It's the defense for Utah that has certainly left them down. When you look at Caleb Williams and everything and what they did, first of all, my mind is still blown watching that sequence there at the end of the game where they had the interception, the clock wasn't running, there was eight seconds on the, and then they added five seconds. Like I still, that was a poorly officiated football game. I'll just leave it at that. All right. It was a poorly officiated football game. And people all over the place, like everyone's saying how bad the officials were across college football this weekend. It's no, you're just going to circle the ones that you disagreed with. Like I didn't think across the board it was horribly officiated, but SC Utah, yeah, that was a rough one without question, I thought, uh, in a lot of ways in the Pac 12. I, I don't know if they necessarily have some splaining to do, but. It was definitely not their finest hour as far as the guys wearing the striped shirts. The other thing I'd say too, watch out for this Utah team. If they can figure some things out defensively, I think they're extremely dangerous going forward. The other thing too for USC is kind of putting a bow on where they're going from here. At some point, you knew that it was going to be unsustainable for them to continue to turn people over and just kind of create that type of momentum. Remember, they came into this game plus 14 in the turnover margin. That was five better than anyone else in college football. The next closest was plus nine. So I think when you look at everything there, it was only a matter of time for SC and they got got on the road, but still in a great position, still very much control their own destiny. And I'd be shocked if SC, if they win out, isn't in the college football playoff. Moving next to one of the most dramatic games of the day, TCU comes back from a 17-point deficit to upend the eighth-ranked Oklahoma State Cowboys. They won it in double overtime. They now have three straight wins against ranked opponents and are the first time that they're undefeated through seven games since 2017. This is the largest comeback, too, since 2017. If y'all remember that comeback, that was the Alamo Bowl. If you don't remember it, check it out. It's one for the ages. I think it was a 35-point comeback or some absurd comeback with their backup quarterback. I think it was like Kohlhausen or whatever. Anyways, check that one out because that was wild. Max Duggan, responsible for three touchdowns. His excellent play continues. Quentin Johnson was the big featured guy of the day. He was responsible for 35% of the attempts through the year. 40 attempts, 14 of which were going in the direction of Quentin Johnson, and he responded. Eight catches, 180 yards, and a crucial touchdown there in overtime. It was second consecutive game with at least 180 yards after posting a career high last week against Kansas. So if you look at what Quentin Johnson's doing at wide receiver, man, Duggan is clearly looking his direction, and they got to feel great about where they're at. What I'm trying to figure out is what happened to Oklahoma State, man. I mean, they were cruising. Up 30 to 16 through three quarters. Spencer Sanders had thrown for 213, added a couple rushing scores, had thrown for one as well. And then, boom, it was as if the light switch flipped immediately. And Sanders just was a completely different guy down the stretch. He was 14 to 40 through his or 14 to 24 in his first 24 attempts, but for 213 and a touchdown. Well, down the stretch in the fourth quarter and overtime, just two of 12 for 32 yards and an interception. So almost a just a complete, completely different guy there in crunch time. And this is one he's probably kicking himself because he's played beautifully all year long. 
And to leave it on the field like that had to have been gut-wrenching. The good news is in the Big 12, nothing really changes for Oklahoma State. You went out, you're still likely, likely going to find your way into the Big 12 championship game. And with how they played, uh, I think they could potentially exact some revenge because I'm not sure TCU was the better team throughout the course of that game on Saturday. Finally, talking a little bit more big picture, how about this? You have nine teams that are remaining right now that are undefeated. Nine that are undefeated. We lost six this past week. We lost six, all right? Three matchups of the unbeaten team teams and no more than 12 undefeated teams remaining. So I think if you look at where we're at right now, Syracuse, Ole Miss, UCLA, TCU, plenty of matchups right now. Syracuse and Clemson play this week in a battle of undefeateds. Still play, Tennessee on a collision course with Georgia here in a couple weeks. We know that Michigan and Ohio State will tee it up at some point here down the road a little bit. So right now, I mean, we're looking at an awful lot of chaos coming up in college football. Ole Miss sitting there at 7-0, and but they have two difficult games coming up as well. They have Alabama. They still have LSU. Ole Miss, the Egg Bowl won't be easy for the Rebels. So if you look at all these teams right now, nine of them that are currently undefeated, there's still an awful lot that needs to be proven, especially with Syracuse. <laughs> Took care of business and won the game in dominant fashion against a shorthanded NC State. But man, we're going to find out about Dino Baver's bunch this week when they take on the Clemson Tigers. 10 seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Your relationships, your skills, your customer base. How about businesses on Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash network, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash network now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash network. Do you have ambitious hiring goals for the last quarter of 2022? With a powerful hiring partner, big goals are no big deal. You need Indeed. Indeed is the hiring platform where you can attract interview, and hire all in one place. Find top talent fast with Indeed's suite of powerful hiring tools like Indeed Instant Match, assessments, and virtual interviews. Indeed makes hiring all in one place so easy because it takes 10 minutes or less for most small business employers to post a job, according to Indeed Data US. Indeed also has a jaw-dropping pool of talent. In fact, three out of four U.S. online job seekers search for jobs on Indeed each month, according to Comstore. Join over 3 million businesses worldwide using Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to sponsor your job post at Indeed.com slash always. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 offer. All right, moving into low-hanging fruit. We do this every Monday. Low-hanging fruit or truth. Coops, kick it off. All right, first one. Alabama fans will blame the referees for the loss to Tennessee. Low-hanging fruit or truth? Truth. Uh, Alabama fans, uh, I'm sure I'll receive some of the blame. I mean, they, they are not afraid to spew a little hatred and vitriol 
uh, when their team comes up short. All right, but here's the takeaway. If you're Alabama, if it were a one-game anomaly with the penalties and the miscues and the mistakes, I think you'd be fair to say, well, man, the you know it just wasn't wasn't our day, right? It was it was the you know the officials had it hard on us. It was tough, right? Yeah, uh, understandable for sure. But then again, when you look at it, man, I mean, this has now kind of become a theme with mistakes, penalties lack of composure, pre-snap penalties, uh, you know, pass interference has been a real problem all year long. And there were calls throughout the game on both sides, I might add, that I disagreed with. Um, but then again, it, it, that's the human element of the game. What we always said as competitors, and doesn't matter whether it was when you're at the Jets or you're at uh, the Bengals or, the, or when I was at Bama or even in high school at South Lake Carroll, like, if the game is left up to the referees and if the referee's decision impacts the outcome, that's our fault. Like ultimately the players are not going to sit there and say, man, those refs got us, man. Like, no, that that's, that's something that, that a lot of fans will react to and understandably. So I've seen them all the time. Penalty vultures on the internet and on Twitter. Oh, snap, snap a picture of this screenshot where the guy's jersey's getting held. That should have been a hold. It didn't get called. I've seen them. You send them to me. You send them all over the place. Doesn't change anything. It doesn't change anything because there are 80 plays in the game. On every single play, there are 22 players involved. If you think there's not a missed call in the game, you're crazy. Of course there is. But ultimately, as a player, you focus on your own performance and your team's performance. You don't often make excuses for why you came up short. You try to find solutions to the issues that you might have had in your execution to make sure that when you get this opportunity again down the road, the focus will be not on externals. The externals being the referees, the location of the game, the atmosphere. Those are externals. You can't control those things. What you can control is your execution, your performance, and your own personal emotions. So I, I have never, ever in a million years blamed an official for anything. There have been calls I disagreed with. There have been calls that have impacted games that I've played in. But ultimately, it was my fault and my teammates' fault for not doing enough to distance ourselves far enough from the opponent to where one specific call is going to make a huge impact in the game. So I've never subscribed to the idea that referees cost games. I think referees are awesome for the most part. And if you grade every single referee out, they're going to grade out at 95%. It's just all we focus on are the 5% that they get wrong. And that's a little bit unfortunate, but it's also a little bit where we're at in society. I wish every referee had to have a Twitter account and they could sit on Sundays and just answer tweets. That'd be fantastic. <laughs> all right. Moving on. Marcus Freeman is in over his head as head coach at Notre Dame. Low-hanging fruit or truth? Uh, Low-hanging fruit. And and the reason why it's low-hanging fruit is, one, he's already been dealt a bad hand. Remember, he's lost his starting quarterback. How many teams, if you lose your starting quarterback, are going to struggle offensively? I mean, he's not the first. He won't be the last. You lose a starting quarterback, things can go sideways. It's as simple as that. Now, obviously, they had things going there for a minute, and you had some positivity. Can't lose to Stanford. It's an inexcusable loss. Stanford's not good. And the fact that you came up short against them in your own backyard makes it increasingly more frustrating. But 
ultimately, when you look at Notre Dame, it's a difficult place to cut your teeth, man. Like every single mistake that you make is going to be highlighted. And if you're a first time head coach, the likelihood of you making a mistake or two or three or 10 is incredibly high. Guess what? Every other first time head coach is making the exact same mistakes. Marcus Freeman's not alone, but let's say the first year head coach at say, you know, fill in the blank university, they're not being talked about here on a national show. They're not being highlighted on ESPN or on college game day or on Fox big noon kickoff or whatever it may be. Like they're not getting talked about, but guess who is Marcus Freeman. That's what you get when you sign up to become the head coach of Notre Dame. And there's certainly no sympathy for shortcomings there. But man, learning your head coaching style is not an easy process. Doing so in the midst of adversity is even increasingly is is even more difficult. And then doing so under the most intense microscope that you can have as a head coach is ramps up the difficulty level even higher. So uh it is a low hanging fruit to have that approach because he's making mistakes that every other coach would make if they lost their starting quarterback. And his team's performing poorly, just like every other team that would if they lost their starting quarterback. And uh, all of his mistakes are going to be talked about ad nauseum 24 hours a day on some network somewhere. So uh, I think Mark Freeman is a great coach. I think he's going to be defined by what he does in the future, not by what he does in year number one in a state of transition. All right. James Franklin's record against top 10 teams will turn Penn State fans against him soon. Low-hanging fruit or truth? Truth. And James Franklin, the record against top 10 teams as a top 10 team is more startlingly bad. One in six now against top 10 teams as a top 10 team. That one win came six years ago. So that's what would concern me most. Like people are going to point to, well, he's two and 19 against top 10 teams. Yeah, but, you know, how many of those came when he was at Vanderbilt and was basically playing with one arm tied behind his back? What I find problematic is that his teams have not performed well when they're good against good teams. So I'm a little bit disappointed with the performance, but I also think they were outclassed as far as personnel is concerned too. Uh, I didn't think they played as well in the front seven as I anticipated. And I also think Michigan's really good. Like instead of just absolutely burying Penn state, I'm going to focus a little bit more on Michigan because that was more of a testament, just how good Michigan is not necessarily a reflection of how bad Penn state is. Now they got exposed and they have things they need to clean up without question. And if they don't clean them up quickly this week, Mo Ibrahim and company are going to run it right down their throat, just like Blake Corum and Michigan did. So they got a lot of things to iron out and they get it, they better get it ironed out quickly. But either way, yes, I think Penn State fans already know that Matt Rule, you know, his dream job is Penn State, right? Or at least there have been multiple outlets that have reported that. Matt Rule is available. Obviously, James Franklin's not on the hot seat. James Franklin's not in a position where he could lose his job. Not at all. Not with the contract that he's owed. Not with the success that he's had. But I think Penn State fans will turn on him in a heartbeat if they lose a couple that they shouldn't. 
and they deserve to lose on Saturday. They were a seven-point dog. Losing the way they lost, however, isn't excusable. If they lose badly against Ohio State, and if they lose against a team that they're favored against, that's when people will start to howl. So no, I don't think he's in a position yet to where the fans are totally going to turn. But yes, I think that could happen if they don't get things cleaned up in a hurry. It's starting to feel like it's turning a corner. All right. Uh, UCLA is the only hope for the Pac-12 to make the playoffs. Low-hanging fruit or truth? I'm going to say that's low-hanging fruit because we've seen one-loss teams in the past obviously get in. And it's easy now with, you know, prisoner of the moment mentality. We all said that the, the, the Pac-12, it's like we're waiting to just declare the Pac-12 dead. Well, they're not dead. We thought they were dead after week one when Oregon and Utah lost. Last time I checked, they still have a few teams that are still in the mix. Oregon and UCLA are hosting college game day this weekend. It's at Oregon in Eugene. Winner of that game is sitting there either undefeated or with one loss, and now they have a critical win if Oregon's somehow able to protect the home field and get the job done. USC is still in the mix. Now, I'm not a believer in SC right now. They still, I think you have to, they kind of have the Iowa feel of a year ago. Like when they're turning people over, they look great. But are they really that good? You know, are they really that consistent? I thought they should have lost a couple weeks ago against Oregon State. So Oregon State, of course, turned the ball over four times and still narrowly lost that game. So I look at USC and I think that they'll lose again. But I also think too, that SC is very much alive in regards to the college football playoff race. So I have a difficult time eliminating any of those teams right now because at their best, I've seen each of those three teams look dominant. Best performance, obviously, by UCLA came against Utah. The best performance by, by Oregon came against BYU. The best performance against say again, for USC came... Uh, Stanford, I guess, even though they weren't great on defense that day. But either way, I mean, all three of those teams, when they rev their engines, they can flat out get it. So I think if I were to rank them as far as likelihood of getting to the college football playoff, UCLA one, Oregon two, USC three at this point for me when I watch these three teams and where they might potentially come up short. All right, just want to give a quick tip of the cap. That's what we call these, I guess. What we're going to start calling them because I kind of like it. little tip of the cap to Chase Brown. 41 carries, 180 yards. He's the first player this year to bypass the 1,000-yard rushing mark on the season. He's not done either. Illinois in prime position to get to the Big Ten Championship game after the performance against Minnesota. Also, of course, need to give a little love to Jalen Hyatt. How could you not? Six receptions. 207 yards and five touchdowns in the upset win against Alabama. Mo Ibrahim has now rushed for at least 100 yards in 14 consecutive games. That's obviously very impressive, too, knowing how good Illinois has been all year against the run. And then finally, Dalton Kincaid. I'm not sure you could find a more important piece to what his team was able to do this past weekend. 16 catches, 234 receiving yards, and a touchdown. So got to give a little love, a little tip of the cap to some of the performances of the weekend. Thanks for being with us. We really appreciate you. Also, thanks for not making fun of me. I have my button-down shirt on from church. I didn't change. Just wanted to get this done, get this fired up, 
get your talking about college football. I couldn't wait to get up here to break down the games from yesterday. And I also couldn't wait to run and hide because everyone keeps asking me how sad I am about the performance of the Crimson Tide last night. I live in Birmingham. I can't escape it. I'm in a dark hole. I'm going to lock myself in my basement. I'm not talking to anybody for the 24-hour rule. All right, I'll come out on Monday and start to address and I'll start to talk about the things that could go down this upcoming weekend. But let me mourn in peace. And please don't make fun of me, Tennessee fans. You guys were right. I was wrong. Congratulations for all it, of this, was, it wasn't called. just the the tide either. It was the Dodgers that lost for you too, right? The Dodgers did lose, uh, but I don't care about them. They're on the list. Hate them. Can't buy a championship. Uh, I usually love them. The Dodgers are my squad. Uh, ride or die with the Dodgers. But hey, man, I think that this new playoff format benefits the wild card team. So glad that we've reinvented the wheel in the playoffs, and these guys can kick off the rust and then just go and take on teams. The Braves are out. Yankees are on life support. Of course, that's as we're as we're you know taping right now. Uh, so maybe the Yankees win by the time this posts. But either way, I don't care. I don't like the new format. The new playoffs are like a participation trophy. Are we going to hear about this when the college football playoff expands from you? Are you going to be out there pointing at the sky? <laughs> no, I like the old I do way. Think, I do think the gap, and if especially if we have home field, like that's why, like this weekend, if there's one thing that we were reminded, right? is that home field matters. Home field advantage matters, man. Like, yes, there are examples in which the home field doesn't. Like, there were plenty of teams that went on the road and, and got convincing and dominant and impressive victories. Like, Clemson, for example, like, going on the road, hostile environment, like, took care of business. Didn't look great in the second half. Fourth quarter got real interesting. But all things considered, man, it's tough to go on the road. So, no, I don't think... Baseball, which is all about timely hitting in the playoffs, I don't think baseball is necessarily going to reflect how college football is going to look in a 12-team playoff format. I love the 12-team playoff format as long as we have home field environments. That's all I care about. Get rid of the bowl games. Get rid of the neutral site. Thank you for your service, Bowl Games. You served college football for the better part of the last 80, 90, 100 years. But your time is gone. Home field advantage needs to reign supreme when we look at the new college football playoff format. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Please like, rate, and subscribe. It helps us out. It helps the show out. We really appreciate the interaction that we've had with you via our email at alwayscollegefootball at gmail.com. Also very much appreciate the interaction that we've had on social media at always CFB on both Instagram and on Twitter. For Mark, for Jack, I'm Greg. We hope you have a wonderful weekend. Jack, by the way, a diehard Tennessee fan. So he's literally, I don't know, he's probably still partying right now. Uh, I'm sure he has a piece of the upright in his dorm room right now, considering he is a Tennessee student. But congrats, Jack. We're happy for you, even though it pains me to say it. And it pains me to see that 15-game win streak go away. But ultimately, man, having Tennessee back is great for college football, and that's something I can certainly rally behind. Thanks for all of us. We'll be back tomorrow. Hope you have a wonderful, wonderful rest of the day. And remember, it's always college football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.